Hi, I'm Adam Geis. I'm David Lurch. We're hosts of the EdTech Distilled Podcast, which is a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that we'll be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Roger Parrott, the president of Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us as we talk about Bellhaven and its unique focus, helping parents help their children follow their dreams, the value of a Christian college education, the college debt myth, a unique program with China, and Dr. Parrott's books, the first one, The Long View, Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders, and his newest called Opportunity Leadership. Stop planning and start getting results. So much to learn today. You're going to love this interview. Thanks for being there. Thanks for listening. And, and by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, reviewed the podcast. Could you do that for me, please? <laughs> Thanks so much. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. Amy Buckley is the Chief Academic Officer and Co-Founder of Study Help, a tutoring platform. You can hear Amy talk about study help at stephenmaletto.com slash 449. That's episode 449. Amy has given me a few hundred dollar gift cards for study help, you know, to give away. That is so cool. Just send me an email at my contact page, stephenmaletto.com slash contact. Simply say, I would like a hundred dollar gift card to study help. First come, first serve. This is a giveaway that is awesome. Good luck. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. With me today is Dr. Roger Parrott, the president of Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi. He was named among the 10 most visionary education leaders of 2021 by The Education Magazine. As one of the longest-serving college presidents in America, Dr. Parrott is a fountain of knowledge for Christian parents and business leaders alike. He is the author of The Long View, Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders, and he has a new book, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results, scheduled for release in February 2022. Roger, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Well, it's a treat to be here. I really admire what you're doing and your reach and the significance of your uh, podcast work, so uh, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, and this is awesome. And, and the pleasure is all mine. I got to tell you, you, you got an incredible uh, um, history and uh, your leadership and it, just all the, the messages you have. Uh, it, I'm so honored to have you here on my show and I appreciate you being here. So kind. So, so Roger, let's start by talking about you as, as a college president. I mean, you've been the president of Bellhaven University for 27 years and a college president for over 33 years. Uh, did you set out to be a college president, and what makes you successful at this position? Well, I, I did and I didn't. It's really um, um, a little bit unusual in that my, both my father and my grandfather were university presidents. So a little bit, it's family business, but I 
determined I wasn't going to do it, but here I am. So, uh, but uh, did have that pattern growing up in a president's home. So knew it a little bit from the inside and and from my grandfather as well. But, um, you know, it, it just, in God's good timing, it came about and I was elected uh, when I was probably way too young at 34. And uh, so I've been at it a while, been here at Bellhaven 27 years now. I love it every single day. It's always interesting. I mean, what other job in the world where you can, can you work with, you know, idealistic young people who have a vision for changing the world with faculty who are really experts in what they do and very caring with, um, you know, uh, you get to run your own little city and own my own football team. So it doesn't get any better than that. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> That's cool. Yes. And especially the thought about owning your own football team. I like. And the football team's really good. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> even, better. <laughs> even, even better. Even <laughs> better. Um, uh, you know, in your, in your bio, I, I, I this is, uh, I read this, I mean, uh, under his leadership, I mean, it, Bellhaven has grown to 5,000 students, becoming distinctive as only one of only 35 schools earning national accreditation in all four primary arts. Could you talk about how you grew the university and what it means to earn the accreditation in all four primary arts? Yeah, the, the accreditation in the arts is a big deal. And uh, national, of course, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, universities are regionally accredited for your whole of your program. You're either accredited or you're not. But then various disciplines have their own accreditation, such as business and uh, social work like that. But the arts in the four primary arts music, theater, visual art, and dance, they all have a national accreditation. And they it means you're working at the very highest uh, standards in those disciplines. And there are only 35 schools in the country who have achieved national accreditation in all four of those. And so it's, it's Bellhaven and Jackson, Mississippi, along with Ohio State and uh, and. Uh, uh, California and Juilliard. And, you know, it's just really kind of mind boggling to me that we've achieved at this high level in the arts, but, but we really have, we have a tremendous dance program, beautiful facilities, um, a theater program, very dynamic. Um, you know, the visual arts, uh, we're doing something called Tradigital now as our focus, which is a blending of traditional arts with digital art and um, and then music of course is is a standard especially for a christian college but we we work in other arts as well that don't have a national accreditation uh such as film and uh and the creative writing creative writing is a really strong program for us and and one of our famous alums um uh, is uh, Angie Thomas, who wrote the book, The Hate You Give, and and uh, now has three New York Times bestsellers um, and three movies. Um, but she, she developed that book while she was a senior on our campus, and the storyline was so good, the faculty said, you need to make this into a, mo- mo- a novel, and that's really how the book um, came about after that. So, you know, to work in this arts, it it creates a wonderful dynamic in the campus because when you have all the arts, then you have a high percentage of students majoring in the arts, about a third of our traditional students are majoring in the arts. And so just in that creates an arts community that really is a, an extra bonus uh, blessing to the whole thing. That's awesome. That's cool. I, the, uh, um, as, and it just, what a, it, it just, uh, you know, to have that, those types of programs and to have them thriving is wonderful. And, you know, in, uh, um, just as a note, I mean, one of the things that I'm going to ask you about in just a minute is, uh, is going to go along with this. Cause I have, you know, having been a uh, high school principal, I, I, in public school settings, I went to schools where change needed to happen. And that was my, my direction. And, in, and in several of the schools, one of the things that I ran into, because I'm a, I'm a, uh, former band kid. I love band. I trumpet player. I and it became useful to me as a high school principal too. I found it connected me with the other kids and stuff like this. And, you know, and it, uh, has always been one of my things as a high school teacher. One of the, uh, um, groups, organizations that I sponsored was a theater. I'm not a theater director. I, I, they needed some, they had never had one. They hadn't had one in 15 years. And I went, you know what? I think I can do that. So, uh, <laughs> and, Great. That's and, terrific. I, and I stepped forward and, and created a, a theater club, but the, uh, um, you know, and it's, uh, 
I love the, the arts and performing arts. And I, w- I went into a couple of schools where they had been uh, almost decimated completely with the idea of uh, building deeper math programs and English programs. And so I had to turn that around. Uh, you know, one of the, have you run into that across the country? I know I, I didn't plan to ask you this, but I think that's. Well, I, I think that there is a, is a concern of the arts of a couple levels. One is, um, uh, I, I think there's, uh, you know, is this just extracurricular? Is this above and beyond? You know, they are expensive to do the arts and all. It's interesting that uh, public schools don't mind putting a lot of money into football, but then uh, when it comes to the theater program, they don't want to pay the royalties to get a good show. And uh, like, really? Uh, you know, um, right, right. Uh, I also think that's probably what's going to sustain the arts, especially in public education, is uh, because the schools are going so strong in their sports programs, if they don't do something in the arts to to serve that side of the community, um, you know, they're, they're going to be in trouble. So it probably probably helps the arts in the long run. Uh, but, you know, these students have a passion for it. And that's the whole thing. They have a passion to act or to sing or to dance or to, or to draw or paint. And if that is their passion and God put that in their spirit and heart, we've got to find a way to help them develop that. And it'd be a shame if you've got a passion for something in your life and you say, well, yeah, you can't do that. You really got to do something more serious, whatever that is. No, the arts is very serious because that's how our culture communicates is through the arts. And when the arts are effective and cult and communicates great messages, good things happen. And so that's why we're committed to the arts as a Christian institution, because we believe the arts can be used for a lot of good. It hasn't always been that way, but you know, in the, in um, you go back uh, through 400, 500 years, it was the church that was the center of the arts. They were the ones who made uh, the high level arts uh, quality of those eras. And, and we want to do the same when we think we can do the same in our, I'm proud of our uh, alumni who are out there doing it. And about 90% of our graduates in the arts actually work in the arts full-time. That's excellent. I, I love that. You know, and, and I want to use this to segue into, into this, which is, you know, let's talk about helping parents help their children to follow their dreams and pursue that career in arts. I mean, that's, you know, sometimes that becomes something that uh, people say, yeah, that must be fun for, you know, just a side thing. But, uh, you know, <laughs> if their dream is to do this, to perform, what, no matter what it is, or, you know, whether it's writing or, I mean, or whether it's actually, you know, producing stage productions or being on the stage or, or you know, performing with an instrument, you know, whatever it is, what, uh, can we talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, we sure can, because I think it's a critical question. I, do, I deal, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of arts uh, families, students and their parents and all, and I am one. My daughter was a theater major, and uh, she loves theater. It was her passion. That's what she wants to do. And I've told her that even if she didn't perform after she graduated, I think it's one of the best preparations she could ever have. It taught her how to be confident in herself and how to communicate succinctly. It taught her how to be disciplined. It taught or how to work in groups, taught a lot of great things. So the arts does stuff way beyond the arts. But, you know, it is the passion of these students. And so, uh, you know, parents tend to say, as I tended to say, because my daughter was in the arts, I'm really glad you can do that, but what are you really going to do, you know? And there's just that natural reaction of parents who are scared to death that their their son or daughter is going to go off to college major in the arts and come home, live in their basement for, you know, the next 10 years. It doesn't have to be that way. But I tell you, I did something about that a couple, um, uh, three years ago. I got concerned about our students because I'm seeing more families nervous about majoring in the arts. And I thought, we got what can we do to help these families? And I thought, what we could do is allow them to get a double major without any extra cost. And we like that idea so much, we do do it for all of our students now. So if a student comes as a freshman and they double major and that double major pushes them into a fifth year of study, they come tuition free during the fifth year. So I ran into a dancer the other day who was dancing biology. I don't know what she's going to do with it, but that's what she wanted to major in. You know, it could be theater and and business. You could be um, uh, graphic design and communications. 
uh, students can double major, get two degrees. It won't cost any extra. If it goes into the fifth year, they go tuition free. And that to me is an option, not just for the art students, but for all students to get broadly trained and prepared for a very changing world uh, where the arts really is going to be incorporated into most everything we do in our culture and how they can take advantage of both a more traditional major with their arts passion and to make a career out of it. I love that. That's so awesome. And it's, it's so encouraging because, you know, you hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of parents are going, okay, so we're, that's nice, but uh, what do you really want to do? You know, <laughs> or, or can exactly. we, can we talk about some other <laughs> direction or something like this? So I mean, <laughs> I love the encouragement because it is, I mean, typically it is a passion for the kids or it, you know, to, to find and pursue. And it's nice to have that encouragement to say, this is a path, this is real. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, you know, let's, let's use this to kind of shift to this because, you know, I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about um, the idea of pursuing and, and the value of a Christian college education. I mean, the idea that uh, students and parents uh, should consider a Christian university. Why, what's, uh, what's there that uh, they should think about? Well, what we do is dramatically different from what they will find at a, at a major, especially at a major flagship university. And kind of where uh, I'm troubled by where higher education in general is headed. And at a major public university, it's often focused on four characteristics that I see that all start with the letter S. They're interested in size and sizzle and sports and status. And that is what drives these major universities now. And the student experience suffers because of that. Bellhaven is a Christian institution. And, you know, I think people sometimes think, well, Christian institution, oh, they're going to be really narrow. They're going to be, uh, they're not going to have any dialogue and stuff. They're going to be real uh, hard to, to live on campus. No, not at all. We, we're probably be more dynamic in our discussions than a lot of uh, state schools who won't talk about faith as a foundation for how life ought to be. Um, uh, our, we want to teach values of quality living in, in college and in life. You know, they, they often say that college is uh, a place where students are, are treated like 14-year-olds uh, in the classroom and 40-year-olds and outside the classroom. No, they're 18 to 22-year-olds. Let's just treat them that way. And uh, let, let's help them build that quality in their life. So, so with us, instead of those four S's, we have four characteristics that I, that I summarize with the letter C, and that's character, community, caring, and Christ. And we build a biblical foundation into every discipline, whether that's business or biology or whether that's uh, math or, or psychology. We want to understand how God designed the world, help students get and build that perspective because their worldview matters, and help them to understand, here's how God designed it. Here's how it's gotten messed up in our culture. What can we do to help correct that, and where can we meet the needs of people? And our campus motto to serve, not to be served, is something we take very seriously because we want our students to understand the service of others is our highest calling, and how can we do that in meaningful ways where we're grace-centered, we're kind to people, we're not judgmental. Um, I often remind my campus that uh, when when Jesus is described in the Bible, uh, they say he came full of grace and truth. And I think a lot of Christian schools or, or Christian people can get uh, kind of hitting people over the head with their truth. And truth is important, but grace is just as important. And we want that balance of grace and truth. And so it makes us a different as a Christian institution that kind of has that holistic approach to how do we build that into a student's life and give them the kind of support that they need as somebody chosen by God to come study with us. And we're serious about it. We don't mess around. And it really is a wonderful way to learn. That's excellent. I love it. love it. The, uh, by the way, I, I'm 58. Can I still enroll? God, you sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. We'd love it. I want to go back to, I want to go back you to. You've got a whole bunch of degrees already though. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you need another one. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, the, uh, uh, I got to ask you that. And I want to, I want to come back to something I'm going to, talk about in just a minute, but I want to use what you just said to, to, to go in. I, I understand you have this, this really cool program that works with China that where you send students to, 
to work in China. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that. Well, it's, yeah, it is kind of a remarkable um, opportunity we had. And it, it's not that we, do, we don't send students to China. We have a online MBA program in China that we teach in Mandarin. And so we've got about 500 Chinese students enrolled. Um, and um, uh, they study um, in Mandarin uh, or in English. Some of them want the program in English, so we teach it both ways. But they are in China, and uh, some of them come even here for graduation. I was there two years ago for graduation when we had it in Beijing. Uh, my daughter went with me, and um, we were uh, the, the one who was the theater major. She went on to do her master's in leadership here at Bellhaven. And uh, she went with me because she was free. And um, we're hugging all the students at graduation. We're saying, where are you from? Because they're from all across China. And most of them said, we're from a town you've never heard of. It's called Wuhan. And um, um, uh, about three days later, my daughter got sick. And she's the, the longest suffering COVID long person in America. Uh, she's been in bed for nearly two years with the lingering effects of COVID. So, uh, um, you know, she's just one of the early ones to bring it back. She didn't, uh, uh, but we love our Chinese students. They're fabulous students. They work very, very hard. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge, but they want American degrees. We also teach a, an education degree in China uh, and uh, we told them when they wanted this degree, we said, it's, uh, it's American style education. They said, oh, no, that's what we want. We want to learn to teach. We want to learn education like Americans learn education. We want that. So it's been a, a really interesting adventure to work in China. That's awesome. And, that's, and I'm apologizing for the misstep there. I uh, didn't uh, talk about sending it, it with it all being online. And such. That's, that's an incredible program that you have going on. And I, what, are there any sorts of uh, kind of, do you kind of have to, to use an old phrase, walk through the tulips sometimes when uh, kind of working with um, the Chinese or is there, I mean, well, when you, yeah, when you work in China, you want to be careful. We are read, we are recognized by the government. You can't work in China if you're not recognized by the government. So you have to play by the rules and um, we're careful to do that. And um, they know we're a Christian school, which is interesting. And um, uh, we don't put uh, the same level of a, of a, um, a biblical foundation in that curriculum as we would in America. We're pretty cautious how we do it. But um, we find that there, there are lots of students who are Christians in China who, who resonate with who we are. But uh, we found the Chinese to be very easy to work with and very serious about education. And so uh, we really like the relationship. Um, uh, we've also, um, uh, started a, uh, a doctoral program, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to expand into China. We have a, a potential partnership developing with that. That could be pretty dramatic and exciting for both China and for, uh, for Bellhaven, if that comes about. That's excellent. Well, good luck with all that. And that's, uh, that's, that's a, what an, a really amazing program. Nice. I, let's, let's kind of go back to, to parents and kids and choosing what they're going to do at college. Cause I got to get you to talk about this. When I saw that you, this is something that's a fair game. I got to, I got to ask you about this and I've heard you talk about this, which is, is awesome. Let's, let's talk about the college debt miss myth. Uh, you know, what's the, it, it, you talk about what's the real cost of higher education. Can you go there? Yeah, I sure can because I, I'm, I really worry for parents and families who don't understand the real cost of higher education. So I got serious about it about two years ago and I wrote an extensive paper, I think it's 17 pages long, about, about the real cost of higher education and, and where the right questions to ask, how to understand costs. It's on our website, it's for free because I think parents and students look at a published price and they're making decisions about that. And they really don't understand how it works. In fact, I just filmed a series of, of five videos we're going to be releasing pretty soon on the real cost of, of higher education. But let's look at the debt question, because that's a big one I get from a lot of people. They say, well, I, I don't want to go in debt. I hear about it on the news, and I hear how horrible it is. I don't think, at least, all I can do is speak from Bellhaven's experience. I don't think most families understand what college debt means for an undergraduate at a place like Bellhaven. Most of my students graduate with less than $20,000 worth of debt. And uh, you hear these stories on the news of three, $400,000 worth of debt. Th that's driven by a couple of things. One is 
uh, it's driven by for-profit institutions who want their students to borrow as much as possible because that's how they get them in. We encourage students to only borrow what you need. Don't borrow more than you have to. And secondly, it's driven by the graduate programs where there is no limit for how much you can borrow. So if you're going to be a doctor, you might go out and borrow three or $400,000. But look, if it's $20,000 for one of my students, and I can assure you that you're going to make two to three and a half million more in your lifetime because of that degree, that's an investment any of us would make all day long. That's an easy decision to make. But we got more serious even about costs than that. And I don't, and, and one of the issues I think people don't understand is they'll look at our price and they look at a flagship university in their, in their home state and they go, well, Bellhaven's $35,000 more over four years. I'm not going to go there. I, I would encourage you folks who are, who are looking at this question to look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is this. At a state university, it takes an average of five years and eight months to graduate. That means you're going to stay in at least for three semesters longer than if you come to Bellhaven. If you come to Bellhaven, you take one major, you don't double major, you're going to graduate in four years. I can guarantee it. So you, you will graduate in four years. With them, you're going to go an extra three semesters. Let's say that's 15 grand. We were 35 more to start with now you're paying an extra 15 grand to go for an extra three semesters. And then, you know, you're not in the job market during those 18 months. If you make $35,000, that's $52,000 of lost income right there. So 52,000 plus the 15,000 compared to 35,000 more with us, we're a bargain compared to that. Now I added a couple things onto that to really make us a bargain for our students. One is this double major we talked about before, which I think is a terrific opportunity for students to get a broader based education without any additional costs. But the other thing is we are doing because of COVID and we're gonna continue it at least for a while, we're providing all of our graduates a free master's degree. And so if they come with us as a freshman or they transfer to us and take at least 60 hours, they can take any of our online master's degrees for free once they graduate and they can take it whenever they want. So they can take it immediately after they graduate. They can take it five years, 10, 20 years later. We don't care. Um, I talked to a prospective student last week who's going on to medical school when she finishes with us. And I said, do a master's of leadership after that. And it's always going to broaden your, your uh, advancement in the medical field when you can do that. Um, and that's that's worth you know fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars. You start adding all this up, and again, I've got it in the document. But you know, it it it's about a ninety five thousand dollar difference. It's going to cost to go to a state university compared to go to Bellhaven with some of these advantages for only thirty five thousand dollars more. So it it really is. Um, if you ask the right questions. You can save a lot of money by college if you think of it in broader context and simply, what's the sticker price? What's my scholarship? You know, and, and go with that. That's just the starting point of the discussion. I appreciate you talking about that because I, I, I've listened to you speak about it as well as uh, um, read some of your thoughts. And I, and I think this is an, it's an awesome conversation to have with, with many because I, I think that they get caught up in this idea that, uh, you know, people wanting to get votes talk about things for free. And, you know, there should be everything for free. And I, I think that that's raised a, you know, some strange thing that they, they think that that's the way it should be. And it, it doesn't work that way. And um, what's sad is that I, I, I know myself, I've gone to a small, I got a, I became a second lieutenant in the army through a, a small um, military um, junior college, what they used to be called. And, uh, um, and then uh, became an officer there, but had to finish out the rest of my degree someplace else. And uh, so the first thing I did was went back to my state, to the major, one of the major universities there, and uh, they wanted me to take all these classes over that I had. I mean, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. you've got to be kidding me. And eventually that led me to, to transferring to a small private school and in, in, in mm-hmm. not too far from that <laughs> university yeah. in that same state. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's uh, – and uh, one of the things I love about – smaller universities is you, you get to know professors 
and uh, very, very much so. Yeah. And you not only get to know them, but you actually get to have real professors, you know, at a lot of these states, big flagship schools, as you know, freshman and sophomore courses are taught by graduate assistants. They're not taught by real faculty members. And, you know, you come to Bellhaven, every single course is going to be taught by a seasoned experienced faculty member. And you're going to get uh, that from the beginning. That's a big difference. And so sometimes people trying to save money, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of getting what they pay for. And uh, that's why I encourage families to turn over the rocks, understand the questions and really look at the real cost of higher education. That's a pretty big cost to pay to get a poor quality education because you're going to put the time and energy into it. Get your money's worth. Love it. That is awesome. That is, and I, I'm a big believer in that. So that's, uh, yeah, that's just something else. I, I benefited from, you know, having those real professors because at that major place, I had exactly what you talked about when they wanted me to take some of these classes over with that everything from physics to uh, all these classes that had labs. And, uh, and it was just interesting because you basically couldn't see the professor and, and the rest of the right. stuff was graduate assistants and, yeah, exactly. You, you could tell yeah. which ones were good because they were, they were busy all the time. They could have charged whatever yeah. they wanted because they would have. <laughs> so. Yeah, it really is a shame. And again, families don't know that's what they're getting until they get into it. And uh, and then you've you've invested the time, you've invested the money, and it you don't you you limit your options. Very much so. Very much so. So so let's let's shift from talking about. Uh, university life and, uh, and then choices and so forth like this. And let's take a look at some of your leadership talk, you know, writings. I mean, you, your first book was called The Long View, Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders. Can you talk about what your original inspiration was for writing this book? Let's go from yeah, there. Yeah, I wrote that book because I was frustrated in leadership that we tend to put uh, band-aid solutions on big complex problems and because uh, we want stuff fixed in a hurry. And so we don't think about the long-term implications of what we're doing and we don't take a longer perspective on it. And, uh, and then as, as, especially for people within the church, which is what the book's really kind of written toward, toward pastors and, and, and Christian schools and, and Christian uh, organizations, uh, you know, it, it really is, uh, is shortchanging the hope we have because what we've done is we've modeled the, the practice of the business world who wants and, and measures their success by quarterly reports and instead of taking a long-term perspective. And, and in that, we just multiply the complexities of the problems. We don't bring real solutions to things, and we reward and we value people who can make quick ch- quick changes with even though they don't make lasting difference. And so, you know, that's why I wrote the book. And then the book is not just a call to kind of lambast us all to say, well, we ought to do better, but it's really, well, how do you do that? So how do you do that in hiring? How do you do that in evaluation? How do you do that in planning? Uh, How do you do that in, um, in daily operations and communications? It's more how to of, of really from a longer view perspective, uh, how do you do these things? And, and one of the foundational principles is that is lead as if you're going to be there forever. Well, if you're going to be in a place forever and you've been a long time in, in uh, Georgia in leadership, so the problems you're facing now are ones that you you were part of a long time ago and same thing at Bellhaven. So when I'm looking at issues, I'm thinking, yeah, I could spend money on something that's showy or I could fix the roof and I could fix the plumbing and then that'll be fixed for good. And, you know, you tend to invest in those things that are more long-term and whether that's as a family or whether that's as a small business or whether that's running a school or classroom, the same principle holds. We want to do things that have a lasting impact rather than a quick fix solution. And, and how do you, how do you accomplish that is really the, the objective. And I think it's, it's um, there's so much demand to bring fast solutions. I mean, you just look at the political arena, we elect somebody and if they don't have solutions within the first hundred days, we start getting frustrated with them, you know, and these are big complex problems that are not easily solved. Well, you got that right. The, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I got to ask if we, if we could, cause one of the things you've, you've talked about the, the, the focus and the, and the takeaways from there, which is really cool. If I if I could kind of kind of go into one of the ones that you mentioned, you mentioned you know kind of how about evaluations. 
Is, can you talk a little bit about, let's just pick on one of those topics for a second. What, what yeah, you know, evaluation to me is, uh, is critical. Everybody should be evaluated. I'm evaluated every year by my board. And again, we've been working together for 26, 27 years now. And uh, there, there are years when things are going well and they go, oh, we don't need to do your evaluation. I go, yeah, we do. And uh, we come back to it and, and they see the value of it as well. Because what evaluation does is it gives us a formal time to address anything that may be building up, but it also releases a pressure valve. And if it's kind of like a pressure cooker, it, it, whatever job, you're going to rub a few people the wrong way. You're going to have problems. You have some difficulty. If you can't address that periodically, it just builds up until there's an explosion. And then as an employee, you're hurt. As an employer, you're hurt. And and if you have regular evaluation, it settles that. So, so I, I talk in the book about three kinds of evaluation and give the kind of the uh, perspective on my recommendation on how you do it. But there's kind of the feather evaluation, which is, you know, yeah, we're going to do your evaluations. We sit down, we have a cup of coffee, everything's great. And, and we don't really address anything. The other is kind of a hammer evaluation. That's the one where you say, you know, we're going to do your evaluation and you just hold it over people and you never probably never do it. Or when you do, they're so threatened by it. They can't even discuss it. Uh, the third is what I call an evaluation conversation. And that's where I bring issues that I'm concerned about. The people who I report to bring issues they're concerned about. We have that discussion back and forth. And we do that in a, in a formal setting. So we know this is okay to talk about this stuff. This is the time to get this stuff out and make sure there's nothing building up. And I found through the years to have a regular evalu evaluation makes us all better. Nobody does well without evaluation. And um, so we're all stronger when we do uh, uh, be part of an evaluation process. And so I think, but how it done, it's done is really critical to making it worthwhile. Uh, I love that. That's, it, it's something that, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in uh, K through 12 education, we struggle with that. Um, one of the things that you <laughs> can see all over this country is any number of versions of this, that, and the other. And uh, you know, uh, this, this currently is the, you know, over here is the, the shiny objects. We're going to go after that evaluation system or we're going to go chase right. this one or whatever. And, and uh, um, I love what you're talking about because we need it. You need an evaluation. You just got to figure out how to make it something that it's, um, it's useful. Yeah, and everybody's different. And and you know, I've written some in the in the new book that's coming about 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 forward uh, forward view evaluation. And um, and that's the concept that when somebody messes up, there's a tendency to go to them, kind of beat them up for that. Say, don't ever do that again. Put restrictions around them so they can't ever do that again. Intimidate them badly enough that they'll behave, and then we feel like we've accomplished anything, something. But we really haven't. We just made things worse. So what I try to do is, yeah, we need to address things when it's wrong. But how do we get forward looking with that? Okay, it happened. It was a mistake. Let's let's learn from that. But then, how do we go forward? And there's some really interesting examples about how that can happen. Um, and in and, and thinking forward, kind of setting, don't you don't ignore that a mistake happened, but it's not about trying to beat somebody up or trying to hold them uh, down. I've found that people, once they're corrected, they're anxious to show that they can do it. They're anxious to get in the game and do it better next time and just got to get out of the way and let them do that and give them some freedom to show that they really can be successful. That's excellent. I, I think it's uh, so important to, to be able to and you actually need to be able to be able to make some mistakes and then have somebody give you the feedback to get you back on the right path. And, and without that, you know, otherwise, you know, it's kind of use them and get rid of them type thing. If we're not making mistakes, we're not making any progress because if everything works, if we only try what absolutely works, we're not going to get any innovation to make things work. I've had a lot of things not work. And uh, fortunately, I've got a board who understands that. Um, you know, in the Christian world, we have trouble ending something because we say, well, God called us to this. And if God called it to us, how could it ever be not work out? Well, there are reasons sometimes it doesn't work out. We've got to have the courage to end something if it doesn't work. And that's okay. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, 
uh, we've got to make some mistakes along the way. And uh, sometimes I'll be working on something and I'll say to tell my wife about it. And she'll say, uh, you know, why don't you just do it yourself? And I said, well, I could, and I could probably do it better, but if I don't help them to do it, they'll never learn to do it. And you know, when I was younger, somebody let me do it and let me make a lot of mistakes. And I'm thankful for that, or I couldn't do better today. And so we've all got to be part of that process. Excellent. That's awesome. And so you actually mentioned your, your uh, upcoming book. So how about we shift there? Uh, your, your newest book is due out in February 2022. It's titled Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results. I love this title. And I've heard you talk about this, uh, this idea of um, why stop planning and what that means. Can we, we go there just a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, for educators, especially this is kind of scary because uh, I gave so. up traditional planning there. If you come to Bellhaven university's website, there is no plan for Bellhaven 2030. Uh, there is no, here are the five objectives we're going to come up with. There's no blue ribbon committee that came up with a plan. There is no plan that exists for destinations, for future. We plan very well what we know we're going to do. We're going to have a soccer team. We're going to teach English. We're going to run a dining commons. We know that. We're going to plan that very well. But we don't plan what those future destinations are. And it's a completely different way to, le to lead. Uh, I found it wonderfully freeing, and I started it in 2002. Uh, so I've been at it for 20 years now, out of 33, and as a university president, 40 years in higher education. Uh, you know, half in planning, half without planning, and I did the same thing like everybody else did: the blue ribbon committee and the and find the plan and the five objectives and spend 18 months doing it. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't move the dial. It doesn't make anything happen. And if you go back and you look at those plans, that is not where the significant things came from. The significant came things came through opportunities. And so the book is really a call to thinking differently about getting, putting that long range planning away. And of course, anybody who had a plan a couple of years, three years ago, didn't have a plan now because nobody had COVID on their plan. Not one person in the world uh, had COVID on their plan. And so we've all learned to operate without a plan and look at how creative we've gotten through this time of COVID. And we've broken down a lot of barriers that we wouldn't have if we hadn't had the opportunities. So, you know, so the, the book is really an outline for how do you do that? How do you think differently about it? And, and then kind of six talents for opportunity leaders that, that how do you, how do you lead without a plan? And then, and then, then six tendencies of those. And again, this is written my, primarily for Christian organizations, but tendencies of those uh, uh, organizations for how do you, how do you really do this? Embracing speed, you know, getting comfortable with risk, um, uh, you know, flexing as it goes along. Again, those are things schools are not very good at. Universities are not very good at. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. I heard somebody from a major university uh, say, we are the best in the world at teaching entrepreneurship and the worst at, at do actually doing it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on. Uh, but there are different ways we can do this. And the book is not an all or nothing. I know that schools and, and organizations can't just turn off uh, planning. In fact, I encourage them not to just turn off planning, but you can begin to, to take advantage of this idea of opportunities, even in small steps, and it makes a big difference in an organization. I love that because it, it's, it, and it's, and it, I mean, like you said, you know, just turning off planning is not the, the right thing. That's not really what you're talking about, but it is talking about understanding what you're trying to do because the, I mean, I, I've been in those, I've actually taught strategic planning. I've been in those, those planning sessions where it goes on for weeks. It's kind of like a game of Monopoly. You know, it's like, uh, let's see how long we can make this game last. And, and you really accomplish almost nothing. And, and I was wondering if one of the th one of the analogies I've heard you talk about is this idea of power boats and sailboats. And even though I know your your books and your focus is uh, you know Christian focus, I, I got to tell you, I think it fits with everything because it's because it, lots of us we we our committee slow us down. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen, and and we get excited about big shiny things, and that goes gets our attention first, and as opposed to the so could you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, when, when we first got into this, I realized I've got to have an image that people can understand 
what we're trying to do and how we're doing it differently. And, and I was down at the, at the beach and the Gulf and, and saw this beautiful sailboat and everybody walked along the beach, stopped and looked at the sailboat. It's kind of like everybody's idealizing themselves out there. And then a little bit later, here came the, the big fishing boats back in for the day and their diesel motors and churn up the water. And it just, it was just horrible. And I thought, what a contrast. And, you know, so the image we use on our campus, and if you come to our campus, they probably won't talk about opportunity leadership, but that most everybody can talk to you about power boats and sailboats from the maintenance workers to the faculty that most anybody else knows this image. And that's that we want to be a sailboat prepared to catch the wind of God and go wherever God's wind takes us rather than a power boat that goes where we think God wants us to go and ignores the wind. And, um, and so our concept is to, to jump into a power boat where you've got all the bells and whistles and turn on the motor, you really don't have to be much of a sailor. But if you're really going to be in a sailboat, you've got to be well-equipped, you've got to be well-educated, you've got to have a flexible team, you've got to be ready to go when the moment comes, you've got to be patient when the wind doesn't blow, all kinds of characteristic uh, uniquenesses to sailboats versus powerboats. But unfortunately, and in the Christian world, we've gotten pretty good at building powerboats that look very impressive. And so we're really proud of them when they do go, but they completely ignore the wind. We want to be responsive to that wind of God and, and go where God takes us. So that's kind of the image that we use. And, you know, it, it gets lived out in a lot of areas. I mean, I doubt that there's a week or two that goes by. Somebody doesn't say, ask me, they say, well, what's the future of Bellhaven? Where are you going to be in 10 years from now? And my frank, transparent answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I know that the best plan we could come up with around conference tables with whiteboards is pale in comparison to the plan God has for us. And that's what we want to do. We want to capture those opportunities that God brings for us. And China is a good example of that. We did not plan that. It just happened. An opportunity came and we had a culture that was ready to respond to it. That's excellent. I love it. And, uh, and that's cool that, uh, that it's, so known, they may not know about the book, but they know about uh, your sailboats and uh, powerboats, which I think that's awesome. And, and in that analogy, you, you connect it to something you call, you know, destination planning versus strategic planning. Can you just talk about that just brief? Yeah, briefly? And, and I don't want people to think that we shouldn't do strategic planning. We need to strategically plan how to get the most out of what we know we're going to do. So I'm a huge in favor of that. And we need to plan well what we know we're going to do. What we don't want to plan are the destinations. And if you go to almost any university website, they will have a plan for, for 2030 or whatever. Uh, it's always interesting to me that it's never 2029 or 2031 uh, unless it somehow starts with their uh, founding year or something. There's always a round number to it, which is marketing. That's not planning. Uh, but um, they've got a plan. Uh, I saw one last week where the president announced this great brand new plan and said it took two years to create it. And before I read the email, I said to myself, I bet I can guess the outcomes. And I wrote down the objectives of their plan before I read their plan or even looked at the headlines and I was dead on right. Most of us can project those, what those outcomes are ahead of time. So we just want to be really different about that and be responsive to those opportunities and not, not tied down to this plan. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of negotiation. It takes a lot of trying to satisfy the fringe. Um, you know, it doesn't, we never could have become strong in the arts. If we tried to raise all boats, we had to put a lot of energy into the arts when we didn't have money for doing a lot of other things. But in that we were able to, to make that happen. And if you're going to um, make a, a formal plan and you leave some segment out, uh, you know, you're, you're going to hear it endlessly. You can't do that in formal planning. It just doesn't work that way. So the whole process is just a complete dysfunction for what ought to happen for projecting destinations. Again, not for operational planning. We do operational planning all the time. And, and I encourage people, even if you're doing operational planning or if you, even if you're doing long-range planning, that's okay. But just keep a list and report back the opportunities that came over that last year that you took advantage of. And you'll start to see that list grow. I was with a, a private school 
a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that they had read the book several years ago, and they started doing this. And now every year they publish a list of their opportunities. They still have the long-range plan, and that's okay. But just looking at those opportunities, it starts to change your culture about how you respond. to, And that's what we're trying to get to. It's not about whether you plan or don't plan. It's about changing a culture that's responsive to opportunities. I love this. I, I could talk to you about this for a long time. This this is cool. I, you're going to be going, hey, 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 Steve, look at the watch, all right? We got but, uh, Roger, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I, I got to get, if people wanted to connect with you or learn more about whether Bellhaven or about your books or, or uh, just what you got going on, uh, you, you want to tell them where they can connect? Yeah. The easiest way is on our on our university website. It's bellhaven.edu for education. Bellhaven with one L, B-E-L-H-A-V-E-N.edu. And you can find me on there uh, easily and everything else about the free masters and about the double major for free, about the, the, uh, the real cost of college paper. It's all on there. Love it. And I'll put that in information in the show notes so they can find those, uh, the links there. Wonderful. And, uh, and I got two last questions I got to ask you. And I just like to ask my guests this. And, uh, the first one I'd like to ask you, Roger, is this, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, I don't want to quit. I get so much I want to do. <laughs> the good part is I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, literally I will sit in my office at the beginning of the fall semester and not know where we're headed. And it's just wonderful. I know God, God's going to bring us opportunities. And this fall, I didn't know exactly where we're headed. We've had so many opportunities this fall. It's been endless. So, you know, I love what I'm doing. So, so I look at the future and, you know, when you look at the future and it looks overwhelming, if you just take a moment and look at the past and you see how you made it through, the future looks a lot like the past. We just don't know how we're going to get through that future. But when we look back, we can see how we got through the past. So that's what I encourage people to do. Awesome advice. Love it. Uh, last one. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you get say if given a chance to say thank you? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I, unlike a lot of people, I don't remember all my teachers. I probably couldn't tell you the names of most schools I went to. Um, but, um, but there was one teacher when I was a, a freshman in high school, a chemistry teacher. And I guess we had to take chemistry, but I was horrible at it. And she just wouldn't let up. And she used to meet me at 7 o'clock in the morning every day to tutor me to try to get me through that class i have no idea what her name is i know i could walk into that school building i could find that classroom i know exactly where it is but i don't know what why she did that or what but it really made all the difference um uh, in, in in letting me see what a real teacher can do when they take somebody and really invest in them that's awesome i love it uh, so cool. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for sharing about Bellhaven University, education decisions and leadership and, and so much. I, I, I'm looking forward to the release of your next book, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results, and I wish you the very best in all you do. Thanks so much. It's been a joy to be with you. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.